Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello, my name is Kevin Christie and this is Weekend Bigots. As a journalist with more than 14 years of experience, I've decided that the time has come to examine the thorny issue of sectarianism in Scottish football. Glasgow's football clubs are divided by unshakable religious loyalties. Maurice Johnson has now committed the ultimate heresy. McAvenny went hustling into Woods, Woods reacted angrily, then Butcher stepped in. Now it's really bad We're calling this six-part podcast series Weekend Bigots, a phrase that will resonate with fans up and down the country who identify these characters as close friends, work colleagues and often family members. For the purposes of the series, a weekend bigot is a kind of easy-led character who gets sucked into a murky world of sectarianism, often after a few pints which gives him, and it's nearly always a him, a bit of Dutch courage to sing songs commemorating terrorist organisations and battles fought long ago outside these shores. Unlike the more extreme elements among football supporters, the weekend bigot understands his bad behaviour and often has a good sense to be ashamed by it, at least until Saturday comes round again. We'll look back to the late 60s and early 70s, right through to the present day. You'll hear from former players, including ex-Ranger star Derek Ferguson and former Hib star Mickey Weir, who talk candidly about their experiences, both playing professionally and growing up on the streets of Glasgow and Edinburgh, respectively. You could imagine, when I was young, you loved your football, but you knew you couldn't play for Rangers. You want to beat your biggest rival. Uh-huh. Me growing up a Rangers supporter, I, was, I loved beating Celtic. Former referee Stuart Dougal opens up about what it's really like to be at the centre of an old firm derby, with 50,000 fans from both sides being for your blood in our Who's the Mason in the Black episode. Some of the singing you get, you know, obviously the Celtic fans used to be singing Who's the Mason in the Black, but I always thought it was Who's Amazing in the Black that they were singing at me. Former Scotland manager Craig Brown, the last man to take the national team to a major tournament, gives a fascinating insight into how sectarianism was something they always felt aware of when selecting a Scotland team. While he relives a defamation case involving the now defunct News of the World, where he was himself accused of bigotry. Later on, I was accused of being a bigot by the news of the world. And I took legal action against the news of the world. And they had to print an apology. Because the first thing that uh, my lawyer discovered, and I didn't know this, the first five players I signed for Clyde were all Catholics. We've also spoken to former teachers and football managers, including Terry Christie, an ex-headmaster, 
who led Stenhouse Muir to a number of seismic cup shocks. And the fans that are there, it's alive and in their conscience all the time. They are the Catholic, uh, the Catholic Protestant thing is is very alive and well, unfortunately, in Scotland. And you just have to go to any Celtic Rangers match to, to see that. But most of all, we couldn't do a series called Weekend Bigots without going to the fans, including those who recognise sectarian traits in their own behaviour on match days. Say you're on the supporters bus or, or in a supporters bar, and I mean, you've, you've been there yourself. I've even had hearts pals and that that have went through Ibrox, and they'll say to you, it's almost like they're brainwashing you with how catchy the music is, how much the beat is, and everyone's around you, and you do just feel a part of something. I also took a trip through to Hamden for the recent Rangers versus Celtic League Cup final to interview the fans and hear their thoughts before kick-off. They could be singing anything, but I mean, I don't want to hear songs about the UVA for the IRA. What comes out of people's mouth obviously can cause offence. We kicked off the series with a look at how sectarianism has been portrayed in the media. I was joined by my colleague, the sports writer Andrew Smith. There's a tribal element to football that applies right across the board, not even just in terms of the sectarian and bigotry question. I think it applies right across football that people act and behave in a way that they wouldn't dream of doing so outside of football circles. Andrew spent his formative years writing for the Celtic View before moving to the Evening Times and has been with Scotland on Sunday and the Scotsman for over 20 years. Andrew has spoken out about this issue on numerous occasions. He provided us with the historical background and context as to how sectarianism grew in Scotland and seeped into football. I felt it was vital to talk to a journalist with his wealth of experience in this area before we delved deeper and got the views of those who have been involved in the game. So I've got Andrew Andrew Smith in the studio with me today. Hi Andrew. Hiya, hiya. We'll kick off just by asking um, what the idea of a weekend bigot means to you, what the, that concept is. Yes, I think it means that people will say things or use terms or issue chants or abuse at football games that they wouldn't dream of doing in their, in their lives outside of football and that's I think that's problematic in many areas Do you think that's that's kind of ex- there's an acceptance that people are going to go along and be with their friends and maybe have a bit of a drink and sing songs that they're they don't really believe in but they get caught up in the atmosphere and say like for 90 minutes There's a tribal element to football that applies right across the board not even just in terms of the sectarian and bigotry question I think it applies right across football that people act and behave in a way that they wouldn't dream of doing so outside of football circles. So that's like you maybe say things at the game that you wouldn't say in the street. Yeah, you know? definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean, people are singing songs and chanting in a way that they just wouldn't, I would say, by and large. And they'd be calling out if it's Finian B or Orange B, they'd be calling out the opposition players if you're talking about the Derby environment with the uh, Celtic and Rangers, they wouldn't be using that term towards someone in the street as some kind of term of abuse. So they feel emboldened within the ambience of the football environment that they can behave in this fashion. And maybe we've facilitated that. Why do they feel that way? I know you touched on this when we were speaking before, just about the if you swapped racism for sectarianism, it would be absolutely... Yes, exactly. Um, it still happens, upon. but if you take out the term sectarianism and, and put in place... And racism, weekend racists. Would we say it's acceptable for someone to be a weekend racist? I mean, it's just, it's not acceptable in any way, shape or form for anyone to be a racist. So why do we think it's acceptable to d- discriminate on the basis of someone's 
religion or, or like a ethnic identity. We have to equalise. I actually have people saying to me, racism isn't the same as sectarianism because race is inalienable, inalienable. So therefore, it's a much higher tariff. But I think you get into those kind of nuances that you're almost kind of giving people oxygen or licence to behave in ways that in a modern society we should find entirely abhorrent and unacceptable. There is that sectarianism, I think. You could say that the definition is religious there, but then sectarianism can also, I suppose, could creep into to other aspects, like you maybe get all oh, people from from Edinburgh just aren't friendly, you know, so you get that sort of intercity <laughs> yeah. thing that, that's maybe like touching on sect. Maybe because sometimes, maybe the word sectarianism, people get a wee bit kind of blinded by exactly what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. I think we're talking about, actually, I think in Scottish football, in the main, and let's lay cards on the table here, we're not talking about sectarianism. We're talking about anti-Catholic sentiment that is expressed within Scottish football grounds because that's where the vast majority of it comes. Anti-Irish Catholic sentiment indeed because this is how the definition that UEFA have actually run with was Rangers have had partial closures of the grounds for two European games this year. What was written in the charge sheet? It was racism. Yeah. It was racism, but there was racism on the basis of them singing songs about Fenian bees. Yeah. So UEFA... And I think it's through far their anti-racist body that actually they're involved with them in terms of policing the European game. So they've acknowledged that there's something more than just sectarian. It's racist because it's it's an anti-Irish Catholic sentiment because we're going right back here. When Celtic were formed in the 1880s, there was over 100 anti-Catholic societies in Glasgow alone yeah. because there was people were anti-immigrant. The same way we're still finding now, and, and it's mutated in a different way now. Brexit, but yeah. People were anti-immigrant, and who were the immigrants there? They were Irish Catholics who mostly came to, they came to Glasgow, Dundee, and little pockets yeah. of, yeah, of yeah. Leaf, of, yeah. around in that area. And that's why all three of these conurbations had football teams. Hibernian, yeah. Celtic were going to be called. Hibernian, and then they decided the Celtic, it was the hard K which lost its, because they were immigrant people supporting it, they actually lost it, you should describe it as a hard K. And then you had Dundee Hibernian who had to change their name because people were so anti them. So they changed D- it. Dundee United now, yeah. That's Dundee United, but they, they were originally Dundee Hibernian, but had to get rid of the name because they wanted to disassociate themselves from the Irish Catholicism that people found so... Do you think they know what they're singing about? I mean, do you think there's that, you've described a sort of broad history there, do you think these people know what they're singing about? And is it creeping back into Celtic as well? I mean, and can you just touch on, I know there's this, there's always the need to bring in the rest of the teams in Scotland, which I'm not sure is always the the case that there's there's any kind of sectarian problem possibly. Maybe hearts and hips of that. I'd say hearts more than hips. And that's crept back in from people I know that are going to the games. There's a kind of unionist strain. There's almost the kind of, almost the dividing lines of, again, it's like what's been fed into this is like the independence, the, all sorts yeah. of political elements get fed in. You know, it's Rangers are obviously for Queen and Country. Yeah. Celtic are for 
Republicans, whether Irish or Scottish, you know, it's like, yeah, so you've got yeah. these dividing lines, these cultural dividing lines that we're finding actually across society with the whole Brexit debate. But what, how we see ourselves, it's quite fascinating that Celtic and Rangers seem to be such at the antithesis of one another. It's incredible how they, they, they seem to find the opposite lines in any given like subject matter that they're, they're on the opposite sides of it. Yeah, two teams from the same city and it was like so little in common when it comes to this thing and certainly the independence, that's, we've heard that before, I mean that's polarising opinion. Yeah, right? yeah, the Celtic supporters were more likely to vote yes than any supporters of any other club in Scotland. Although it has to be said, it wasn't quite as stark as I thought it would be because Rangers... They had a smaller, a much smaller, like, yes vote, but it wasn't as small as you might have thought it was. It wasn't as if, I think it was 40-odd percent or something, so it wasn't he? It was actually in line with the... the, the I think there's a Rangers fans for independence movement, or, or I've seen yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. And we have to we have to accept, I mean, I don't know if we're, we're thinking, has it got better? I think there's been a regression. Celtic always like to say their fans are political because they sing about the IRA. And, I mean, they sing about the Boys' Old Brigade, Three years ago, the Queen went and laid a wreath to the Boys' Old Brigade in Dublin. So, you know, to, for, to say that this is sectarian, you're getting into murky waters. They sing songs by the, the Wolf Tones. Wolf Tone was himself a Protestant who was very much involved in the nationalist movement. I mean, it gets so... You can get so granular about it and it gets so complicated. Yeah. But what you can sing, and Celtic supporters, I've heard them singing it countless times in the last couple of years. I'd never heard it for years. I mean, I, I grew up. Celtic view, I was involved in the Boys Against Bigotry with a campaign to try and rid what Fergus McCann called the Catholic bigots who always saw themselves as put upon but didn't actually see themselves as sometimes the aggressors and transgressors but in recent years Orange Bees, the whole term Orange Bees, now if you look in any court in the land that'll get you done for religiously aggravated breach of the peace which is, but it's something that went out of the Celtic sport but I'm not blaming the Green Brigade entirely, but it's certainly crept back in. And Rangers, some of the No Pope of Rome and the F the Pope stuff and all that, like I've heard it in a vo at a volume. I've heard it barked right across the 40-odd thousand in a way in the last couple of years, and I hadn't heard it for about 10 years. Things were getting better, and now, at least in terms of the emboldened manner in which people sing songs, they've got much worse again. And obviously, safety in numbers, I think they're going to get out away with it, eh? like, Well, they do. Yeah. They do. The police, the police can't, you can't arrest 40,000 people. Yeah, that's right. I've heard that quite a few times. Now, we'll come on to the media. We're obviously both in the media and it's interesting how the media deal with this subject and I suppose we're mainly focusing on sort of what the old school West Coast media, if you like. And we saw like recent controversy with, with Rangers and Morelos and Sky yeah. television and that. What's your take on all of this? It's I think people put two and two together and get five because people are just 24-hour conspiracy theorists now in all forms of life. And as I say, it's fueled by the rise in social media and the whole idea of fake news because none of us actually believe in any objective truths anymore. We don't actually believe in our institutions. We don't believe in the people who lead our institutions, whether it's the American or British government, because people lie. It's now it's almost become acceptable to lie. So nobody actually believes that 
any truth <laughs> exists anymore. It's a it's a really weird postmodern post truth age we're living in. That's very difficult to live in. It's very difficult to be a journalist within. It's like you can stick fake news up, and it doesn't matter. You get the hits anyway, you know. And it's the same like with mistakes, yeah. and we can correct that later. But we've we've scored, you know. But some people want to see in terms of the Morelis thing, which is a very interesting example of people think the Rangers news manipulation through the great puppet master of James Trainer. So Jim. Why is it that this interview is necessary? Unfortunately, and because of BBC Scotland's apparent inability to treat Rangers in a fair and balanced manner, it's necessary to set the record straight. Now, as far as I'm concerned, and I've spoken to people, and I I haven't spoken to James Traynor on this, but other people that I've spoken to were close to it, this whole idea, the time of the Morellis interview and the the translation, it had nothing to do with James Traynor. I mean, James Traynor is getting vilified for... And he's also getting almost puffed up. In yeah, a, this Machiavellian character that's yeah, controlling all, all media, he, yeah. Maybe he'd love to be that, but he certainly <laughs> sure. nobody can have that power now. Nobody can have that power over the media. It's too fragmented. But James Trainer had nothing to do with the translation. He had nothing to do with... I mean, Morellis's agent, Michael Gorman, like, uh, I think we can say that his her, her fingerprints were all over this. And they've been all over quite a lot of things that, to do with Morellis. Maybe people should ask Stephen Gerrard about what he thinks about Alfredo Morelos' agent. You know, look, the whole idea that James Traynor was behind everything that went on the whole Morelos that whole week. Now, I'm not saying about the car element, the whole cutting the brakes thing, that's totally different. But James Traynor gets a prominence and an importance placed on him in terms of the whole level five. James Traynor's never phoned me. He's never asked me to put anything in. He's... It wouldn't really take my calls necessarily, but like uh, he doesn't manipulate the media in any way, shape, or form. Which is, it's Celtic supporters love this. They love this idea that, as I say, the world's against them. But it's it's just not that way anymore. I don't know if I, I agree a hundred percent, but do you not think he's obviously ex record as I'm myself? Do you not think he's potentially given stories to journalists there that he worked with before? Or well, he might do, we, but he, but he's not. He's not any different from any PR person, is he? In any walk of life. That's just how it works, yeah. That's how PR works. People try to push their own agendas. But it's not like 30 years ago with David Murray. And David Murray did have unhealthy and unseemly level control in terms of what appeared in the media. We've got a web culture today and a media who read the web, who don't have the relationships with football clubs anymore, and people want to sort of make the situation worse. We told the truth. There's nothing untoward as far as Rangers are concerned. We knew Paul Le Guin, a friend of Paul Le Guin's well, who used to feed back things to us, and we all we all have our sources and all that. And uh, when he resigned Le Guin, and David Murray said, is the media stick getting to you? He said, funnily enough, he said, no, I've actually very fairly treated the media. To which David Murray retorted, that's because I've got 80% of them in my pocket. That's the yeah. way he thought of it. It was probably true. David Murray was probably just saying what was true in that point. Then, then by the way, the Scotsman was never one of the that was the paper he hated because we were never <laughs> we've never been tarnished. We were never part of that cabal. It's always Daily Ranger this and that. Now, do you think that they have to say there's a story about the Green Brigade or something about Rangers getting in front? Do you think they try to balance it up to a certain extent? Do you think they're under pressure to do that? Yeah, I think there was even I think that even happened at Holyrood. Yeah, I think the whole offensive behaviour at Football Act. Rosanna Cunningham practically admitted that because what they were finding was all the people that were getting arrested for offences in terms of 
sectarian singing or whatever at football grounds, there was three quarters of them were, were Rangers supporters. So they thought, how can we equalise this? So they tried to bring the political element. They tried to say that the political element, Celtic supporters singing songs about the boys of the old brigade, could be charged the same way that Rangers supporters singing about Fenian bees. Or and it's people going through like lyrics of songs, eh? Lyrics of songs, songs that the Wolf Tones will sing. Like Celtic supporters get arrested for singing a song that the Wolf Tones will sing quarter a mile down the road at the Barrowlands without yeah, yeah. anybody having any comeback. Uh-huh. You can't criminalise people for saying there's a certain criminal behaviour at a football ground that's not criminal elsewhere. That's not the way you can make law. It was such a botched law, and that's why it had to be repealed. What would you like to see replaced by? What would you do you think can be done? I don't think you need it replaced by. You need to enforce the laws that we have. We've got laws about racially aggravated breach of the peace, religiously aggravated breach of the peace. The laws are in place. You have to use them properly. And... I want to see strict liability. That's what I would want to see. I want to see strict liability introduced at football grounds. Why do you think the clubs are against that? Purely financial reasons, is it? Because, I'll tell you, Celtic Rangers are against it because they would fall foul of strict liability very quickly. But the rest of the clubs are against it because Celtic would refuse to take any away tickets for grounds. Because, for instance, St Johnston have given them three, three quarters of their ground for the Scottish Cup tie. Now, if there's ever going to be any problems with strict liability in terms of songs that have been sung, it'll be Celtic supporters. So yeah. Celtic will say, well, we'll not, go any, we'll, we'll not have supporters at away grounds because that spares us. Celtic and Rangers, sorry, Celtic and Rangers, they will not take tickets for away grounds because that spares us the possibility of our fans doing anything they would get as a charge for in terms of yeah. points deduction, fines, points deduction. But then that would eat into the finances of every other club. Yeah, the knock-on effect. Uh. A, th- a club like I did, a, I did a an investigation a couple of years ago about how much every club depends on the ticket sales from even just the three visits from Celtic and Rangers, and it's it can be like twenty percent, eighteen percent, twenty five percent of their budget. Now they can't afford to vote for strict liability because then what they're saying to themselves is twenty five percent of our budget goes up in the smoke right away. They're never going to vote for it. They need, they want Celtic and Rangers supporters and they want more and more of them. They're giving more and more of the stands as, as St Johnston are proven, given three quarters of their ground. That was the highest. Celtic went there the other week. It was the highest attendance I can remember for a, one of the, the Glasgow clubs at, at Perth in years. It was nearly a sellout. So just touch on like other stories that we've covered throughout the years. Obviously, if you're talking about sectarianism, Going back some over 30 years now, the Morris Johnson signing for Rangers. <laughs> Obviously, you remember that and you were working. What, what, did, did you see that as a, a, like a sea change? What was your... It was actually just before... 1989. 1989. Gone, yeah. It was just before I started. I was still at uni and uh, I used to go to a debate. There used to be debates every Thursday and somebody come in with a paper and said, look at this. This isn't a story. Because it was like it was it was something to do with why we've got a trashy tabloid press was the whole point of the they said, Look, this is what we're up against. This isn't a story. And everybody in the audience went, Oh yeah, it is. You know what I mean? It was like <laughs> the, the wee lassie was trying to say that how the press were trash and they didn't cover proper news and all that. We we're saying, No, no, this is proper news. This is real news, you know. Good evening. Glasgow Rangers today ended their long-standing policy of not signing Roman Catholic footballers, and they did so in the most dramatic fashion, securing the transfer of the former Celtic star Maurice Johnston from the French club Nantes. 
The news is doubly controversial because just weeks ago it looked certain that Johnston would be returning to Celtic before that deal broke down amid legal threats. He now becomes the first Roman Catholic to be signed for the Rangers' first team in modern times. See, from, from a Celtic side of things, because obviously he was going to sign for Celtic ended up signing for Rangers, so what was the, the feeling about that? I mean... Was well, as I say, I was at uni, so I wasn't actually. It was only a couple of months before I started journalism, started at Celtic. But you know, it was just a supporter point of view. That I mean, I've investigated this. I, I spoke to David Murray about it twenty years on, and whatever else you might say about David Murray, like uh, I think he should look at that as his legacy and be proud of that as his legacy, because obviously they did it because it was the one upmanship in Celtic was too juicy. It was yeah, I mean, too hard to resist. When People they could, forget how good a player he was at the time. They yeah. destroyed Celtic for a couple of years because if, if Johnson had gone to Celtic at that time, I think genuinely it would have been a much closer contest. They really laid, you know what I mean? He had to want to do it, but it was still a brave decision. You know, I come from Lark Hall, so I come from a place, an area where there's a pub there where they refused to count Morris Johnson's goals the following season. So they, they created a, a new league table that had Rangers not won in the league because they took all his goals off Rangers. And outside, the first signs of the storm which Rangers will now have to weather. You don't think he's a good enough footballer because he's a Roman Catholic? Because he's a Roman Catholic. Do you feel it's the kind of thing that would stop you being a Rangers supporter? Are you happy to go The fans have already come to terms with a big influx of English talent. Now Sooners must make them accept the ultimate outsider. Because this is a pub in terms of the pool table. It's got blue bays instead of green bays and all that, you know. I come from Lark Hall. So like, oh, everybody's, a, yeah, Lark Hall's famous for... Yeah, so I mean, that was the famous pub, you know, and it was the, they always, just outside that pub, it cost the council, it was council council, it run into tens of thousands because they kept smashing the green traffic light. They had to put a grill over it. Madness. And this is what we're talking about. This is this is not weekend bigots. This is people that are bigots. like <laughs> All the time. <laughs> yeah, 24-7. I think you've got to give whatever, even the motivation, however much the motivation might have been to really stick it to Celtic and get a great player. Yeah. He was a great player. Yeah. Why wouldn't you if you could? And Graham Souness and David Murray had no truck with this kind of signing, no signing Catholic policy. Are you troubled at all about the pressures that will be on him as the first Catholic to play here? There'll be pressures on all my players next year because we now have a big squad. There's no one who's going to be an automatic choice, and that includes Morris. There's pressures at playing for Rangers. It's a big club. You have to accept those things when you come here. And in the course of David Murray's 20 years, he not only had a Catholic player, he had a Catholic captain, he had a Catholic manager. There was one stage where, I mean, it's terrible that these things are important, but you do look at them. But there's one stage that during the, what been the, early 90s that Rangers had more Catholics playing for them than Celtic it certainly changed the landscape and I don't think anybody gives it a second thought now I mean no as I say and, and you realise sometimes it's quite arresting how much true that is because I was at Rangers on Sunday and Nico Katic who makes no bones about the fact that he sometimes meets the friends he has at Celtic at Mass on a Sunday night they go to a Mass quite quite near me like um, that for a Rangers player to be feeling quite comfortable but we have moved on so we shouldn't all we shouldn't say it's all bad 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 we've moved on and to see Nico Katic coming out at Ibrox Tunnel and blessing himself not once not twice but three times because that's obviously his pre-match routine it's 
it gladdens the heart. Some things gladden the heart. We've moved on, but then it's like they found something else in terms of what we spoke about earlier with the the unionism and the independence. It's like you know, it's like the modern version of this. Yeah, and it's, they're it's looking still in for the, the other. They're yeah, looking for the difference. These are the fringes. We should remember that. These, the, yeah, yeah. These are the well, they're the fringes with Celtic. They're not the fringes with Rangers. It's, it's it. You don't. You wouldn't hear thirty thousand Celtic or forty thousand Celtic supporters singing Orange B. You hear it in the way support, and you hear it in certain sections of the support, but you do hear like uh, forty thousand. Let's not make any bones about this. You do hear forty thousand Rangers supporters singing about Finian bees, or about no Pope of Rome, and if the Pope in the Vatican and all that. You do hear that. I've have heard it. I've written about it in the last two years. <laughs> And what's the sort of response? You only need it's a few like, people what, to sing. You know, what I got, you know what the response I got when I really laid into that? If you don't like these songs, don't come. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what guy, <laughs> guy emailed me. I think, think you'll get the wrong end of the stick <laughs> here, pal. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but the very fact it's like, that there's somebody who says, I'll sing what I want. You know, that's yeah. what you feel is emboldened to, as I say, sing what you want. And I don't know why we've got back into that. Because I think the clubs, by and large do their bit. Now, there might be a sectarian pound. That, yeah, yeah, that's interesting, the, the sectarian that you, pound, yeah. That you can't, because these are franchises, the two clubs traditionally were religious franchises, that's why they drew people from all over Scotland. Rangers was, for. I mean, Walter Smith said it in an interview in Scotland Sunday to one of my erstwhile colleagues, it's like, they were the last bastion of Protestantism in Scotland, because Catholics had achieved equality in all other areas. And it was almost like Rangers was somewhere where you could still feel that Catholics weren't welcome. Because, yeah. I mean, when I grew up as a Catholic, I wasn't allowed in the local bowling club and all that. I mean, that, that's the reality. That's the truth of it. You know, like, uh, but that'll, that'll fizz, you know what I mean? That'll fizzled out. But Rangers remained a place where you wouldn't feel comfortable. A bit young for the bowls, Andrew, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a cheap, cheap baby element to that. <laughs> so another thing I want to touch on, Andrew, is, is this idea of identity. What attracts young men, and it, it normally is young men, to join these groups, organisations like the Green Brigade, the Blue Order, Hibs Hearts, Aberdeen, I've got this thing. I mean, I, I remember the football casuals. And So so what do you think? Yeah, it's probably a modern strain. It's, it's a modern strain of the football casuals. I mean, the Green Brigade would give you a very different kind of promotion of what their ideals are. They see themselves as the kind of politicals, kind of Marxists. They see themselves as do-gooders, but they almost see themselves as promoting Celtics, Irishness, and like a... And, creating a whole kind of cultural kind of bond. I think it is bonds, it's bands of brothers, isn't it? Uh, yeah. That almost kind of like sometimes goes too far into the kind of toxic masculinity. It's, it's the sense of belonging that, that males have always had, this want to band together and be together and well, we see these kind of power structures right again. These are societal, not just this. The, the, it's almost like the, a stag party every weekend. Yeah, it's almost yeah. like that. And do you think it's like working predominantly working class men that are attracted to it? I think it is. I think it, I think it un, undeniably is. And there's also, I mean, there's been certain professors have done studies because behaviour in football 
right across the board, right across European football, not just Glasgow, not just Britain. There's been a more, there, 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 it's become a more kind of volatile beast. And one of the reasons is, is because of the proliferation of cocaine use. Amongst yeah, because yeah, it used use, to be yeah. it used to be even having a like they would have a few pints or they would have their buck fast now have, and maybe smoke a joint yeah, instead. Yeah. But now they're now they're they're fueled by coke. It's so it's so into the kind of structures of the kind of the football supporter experience, and it's we know it's a drug that kind of emboldens people, makes people aggressive. So, so easy to get that. in the ground as well. It's smuggling coke into a ground is oh, not, exactly, it's not difficult. Yeah. So it's become such a, such a kind of potent and kind of combustible mix of all these elements that we've talked about across our discussion here. You know, because, as I say, because of the kind of the male need to belong, because of the kind of the them and us structures, because of the whole social media kind of, kind of really kind of clickbait fueling the whole kind of sense of like, hey, we're, we're us but against this them. This is the aye. weekend, yeah. And it's like, surrogate families for some of these young lads I mean they might be having a dreadful time and then they can go and escape it's a f- probably the best times of their yeah. lives you know the young lives that they have because a, a it's a wee days concept yeah. and there's a certain they're outlaws in a way they see themselves as you know they're beyond the establishment they're anti-establishment that's very much the Green Brigade they're anti-establishment they're sticking it to the man Yeah, just doing all the things that they're doing and there's, there's an element of that as well. That's what happened to the Offensive Behaviour Football Act, why it was so bad, because the police would train cameras on them. And it's like you train camera, it's almost like a kind of performance seal. If you want someone to act in a certain way, train a camera on them, you know, like, and then they'll give you what they want. You know, you see it all. The, you see it in every television program when they pan at the audience and they have to clap. Them all. Yeah, you know? yeah. So if you want them to behave that way, they'll behave that way. If you give, if you're almost setting them up as to be more important than they are, again. Yeah. Gives them a sense of importance, it's like a sense of structure, a sense of importance. All these, this the whole ultra movement and what ultras are in football is they think they're the super fan. They think they're the super fan that controls the culture of the club, controls how the club is supported. They even want to control how the club like uh, operates. I mean, you, in Italian football, they sometimes storm the after bad results. They've been known to storm the training grounds and demand like a. Uh, conversations with the managers or the owner and saying where did the club go wrong they think it's it's th- their club it's deep within their psyche again I think teams like Lazio Napoli possibly they're involved in local politics as well these guys you know these these ultras they're, yeah. they're big people in the in the society you know it's and I think certainly the Green Brigade see that as their model yeah. they look upon that as their model obviously Lazio are fascists so they're yeah. the complete yeah. opposite of Lazio but uh-huh. the other side of that you know in terms of the sort of St Pauli be a model yeah. very much St Pauli is the model and we're not talking I mean it seems the violence has gone down, but I mean, this is this is still there, and we're not talking about new concepts like young guys showing off in front of their mates, peer group pressure. You know that yeah. that's yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. But as I say, it's getting there's uh, there's a confluence of factors that are are kind of they're making it problematic, and they're certainly making the atmosphere. Maybe it doesn't go much beyond that. The atmosphere at football grounds. I've I've, I've sat there and felt unclean. In recent years, when I'd, I'd kind of got away from that, by and large, some of the... I remember uh, 20 years ago, and I thought, what am I doing here? It was one of the games, that, one of the derbies. I thought, my God. And now now I'm, I'm feeling unclean, sitting there thinking, God, my, my son's grown up now, and I think, I don't want to be part of this. 
I don't really don't want him to be part of this and it's gone in a way I didn't think it would I didn't think it would return to that even if it is in a way it's, it's a synthetic bigotry there is a certain synthetic yes, element yeah. to the bigotry again back to that weekend bigots yeah. it doesn't make it any more palatable but it is people trying to search for something that's no it's no real and it's no really out there anymore it always amazes me what people from Northern Ireland make all of this you know there's actual thousands thousands of people that died and it was yeah. really grim I mean the BBC recent BBC programme Secret History of Ireland yeah. Yeah. Secret History of the Troubles that was it was fascinating but it was it made for grim viewing oh I um, know I know I know and it's like what what it does and what, how it's distilled how it's percolated in the kind of Glasgow football environment. It's a real trivialising of what was a struggle, whatever side you were on, you know, what was a real struggle. And I know people that, like, snort at the Green Brigade who think they're proper politicals. Yeah. They think they're plastic politicals because yeah. these people lived it. Yeah. And then they're just using it to sing a song to get one up and your opponents across the city. Andrew, I just want to close on this note, just about, um, there's been a lot about social media and so-called hate speech and... What part do you think that plays in the, the whole sectarian issue? How, do you think there's there's ways we could look to, to clamp down on this kind of thing? I think it fuels, there's almost a kind of feeling of prejudices. Any prejudices we see, as I say, we see it in the celebrity media, we see it in the political media. It seems to just be a kind of, seems to be a safe haven for people to say and do whatever they want. They wouldn't think of of, of saying something to someone's face that they would say on social media. And we've almost got an element of that within a tribal kind of football kind of environment, whereas you've got that kind of amorphous mass of people who think they can say or do whatever they want about other people. So how you actually, how you really kind of curb that or how you really take that out of people's psyche, it's almost like a psyche as much as, you know, the very kind of particular elements of sectarianism in Scottish football. There's almost a kind of psyche that exists within football and exists within society. So we've got a kind of a meeting of all these different elements that, that this swirl that is very difficult to control. It's almost like a addictive behaviour. They get addicted to going online and getting a, some kind of thrill out of trolling, if you like, you know? Yeah, because you can actually reach the people in previous days gone past. You could maybe write them a letter and they'd maybe get it or the publicist wouldn't give it wouldn't they see it at all, they wouldn't get anywhere near it, but now they actually, they have to, you know, you can guide directly, you can bash someone, you know what I mean, verbally, like uh, in a way you could never before. And in terms of the players, the, the importance of media training, I mean, they, there's numerous instances where they mess up and it always seems to be the same thing, you know, the, the daft tweet, yeah. the offensive tweet, and that's players themselves that are oh, doing yeah. that, yeah. But it's very, it's very difficult to have a 24-hour management of someone's life people have their own they have their off time you know and people have their off time but they never have their off time for their phone so that's where you know that, that is the real problematic element in modern living nobody switches off for their phone nobody switches off from being interconnected with the world sometimes it's darkest you know so in terms of learned behaviour with the sectarianism is that something that, that you think happens and the horrible thing is it's clearly been passed into a new generation. We're seeing young people indulge in this behaviour that really don't... They maybe don't know the origins, they don't know where it comes from. It's just presenting... It's like a retro feel to the songs and stuff. And well, there is definitely. It's like, it's, you know, you, sometimes you think as if you're... 
the docks turned up with his DeLorean sometimes when you, you know when you're sitting listening to some of this these songs which I haven't heard I genuinely haven't heard in uh, 30 yeah. years on the Celtic side as I say the Rangers side they never really entirely went away but they certainly were suppressed amongst the kind of mass audience but now they've seen I found a mass voice again Yeah, and it's like a, it is quite depressing I must say it is quite depressing but it, it's not accompanied with the levels of violence. It's not accompanied with the levels of antisocial behaviour that we're talking about the 60s and 70s and even the early 80s. So we need to see it maybe for what it is. It's a certain kind of strain of, you say, as retro behaviour. It's something that's unacceptable and we want to stamp out, but it doesn't entirely like follow on that we're back to where we were 40 years ago. Well, that's, it's been fascinating and great talking to you, Andrew. So thanks very much for your time, sir. Thank you. Next week, I will be joined by former footballers Derek Ferguson and Mickey Weir, who will talk about their experiences with sectarianism, growing up as football mad youngsters in Glasgow and Edinburgh. I come across a, a rosette that was uh, lying about, looked quite nice, the big horse, white horse, and <laughs> so even you know where I'm going, and I put it on it just because of the colours, it looked cracking. And uh, I was about, what age, was about, about seven or eight. And uh, in the scheme, I come across a, a bunch of boys and uh, basically, I don't know how to put this, they just set about me because of that. And I didn't understand it. You can download Weekend Bigots wherever you listen to your podcasts. But for exclusive, interactive, immersive content, download the NTL app for iOS and Android. If you like what you heard, please rate and review Weekend Bigots and help other listeners discover us too. This is a Laudable production for The Scotsman. You can find out more about Laudable and its other local podcasts by following us on social media. On Twitter, where we are, at Laudable Pods, and Instagram, by searching for Laudable underscore podcasts.